It is Tuesday, December 6th, and welcome to episode 159 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that gets you quickly up to speed three times a week on the national security and foreign policy debates shaking up America. We are continuing our week-long special from our time at the Reagan National Defense Forum. You can maybe hear the cappuccino machines in the background and the chatter of all the folks around us. Um, today, we are welcoming Dr. Nadia Shadlow on the show. Dr. Shadlow is currently a fellow at the Hudson Institute and the Hoover Institution. In 2018, she served as the U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor for strategy. And in that role, she oversaw the creation of the 2017 National Security Strategy, which was the first time since the end of the Cold War uh, to identify the return of great power rivalries as a central feature of global geopolitics. We are thrilled to have her on the show. Uh, To start us off, I'd love to know more about your background and your time at the National Security Council in the relatively new role of the Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategy. You know, what did your role entail and what's it like to be in a new role, kind of defining a position and the parameters yourself? Thanks, Jessica. Well, it was really an exciting time because I had an opportunity to help create um, our nation's national security strategy in in 2017. Um, I had autonomy to do that, which was great. And for those who have worked in government, that's uh, that's pretty special to have. Uh, But I think it essentially allowed me to gather uh, the resources and the knowledge that I needed um, almost to build the coalitions I needed in a relatively uh, quick amount of time so that we could deliver a strategy by the end of the the first year of the Trump administration. So speaking of the national security strategy, what actually do you mean, like the process of putting it together, how many people are involved, the timeline, just a little bit of the dynamics there? Well, there's no manual on how to make a national security strategy, sort of national security strategy for dummies 101, right? One of those those (laughs) yellow books. So that doesn't exist. Um, The best resource is probably past national security strategies to look at how different administrations structured them. So, of course, we read all of them and uh, made some decisions about which ones we thought were most effectively organized or not. And also, you know, the team that was working with me uh, had a knowledge of strategy and of history. And we ultimately settled on the idea that we would structure the, the strategy around four core American national interests, our core interests. And so right now, or recently, the Biden administration came out with its national security strategy. And you've you've noted when when talking about it that it calls out China, rightly so, but also, you know, labels and identifies a number of areas that cooperation and collaboration. And so it's kind of a strange dynamic there, right? And so if you could talk a little bit more about that, like, you know, why do you think they took that position and what are the dangers in that in that approach? Well, I I think the Biden strategy identifies China as the key strategic pacing threat facing the United States, right? China could compete effectively economically, politically, militarily, cyber, space domains, you know, really all, which is really what the 2017 strategy did as well. So there's a lot of consistency, and that's a good thing, because in government, you ideally want some consistency so you can actually get things done, especially when, when threats and challenges are involved. Um, But the Biden strategy did go further in articulating sort of a philosophy of cooperation with China as well. Uh, That cooperation um, really is centered on the need to focus on climate as an existential threat. So that was the Biden approach. That is the Biden approach. And I think that that undergirds sort of that that philosophy of cooperation with China. And, And that poses, you know, it has, I can understand from those assumptions that that position of of why the Biden administration um, believes that. But I think it's based on a set of assumptions that I I probably don't hold. Um, I think you want to be careful about 
um, the idea that you can cooperate too much at the expense of everything else, right? So if, if climate is front and center and the most paramount threat, then you might be willing uh, to, to compromise on many more things than perhaps we should. And given what happened at COP27 and China, you know, the breakdown of negotiations, that's it's a big, you know, hill to stake your claim on. I mean, having said that, there, what's puzzling is that there are actually some very strong actions that have been taken by the Biden administration vis-a-vis -vis China. So there are a series of export controls mm -hmm. that have gone into effect that are quite strong and significant in the semiconductor area, for instance, um, in other areas as well, areas involving banning Huawei and ZTE, which are, they provide important components for 5G networks. So those are pretty strong actions, and they sort of contrast in some ways with elements of, of the strategy. And so, so it's, you know, moving kind of to the tech and innovation space, um, you know, point out some of the actions the Biden administration has taken vis-a-vis -vis China. You know, what else can the government, you know, Leland, that's probably good things to do. Um, you know, what are other things the administration can do or how can it cooperate maybe with industry and the private sector to continue to maintain, you know, a tech edge when it comes to competition with China? There are several um, things we need to be doing. First, you know, the baseline is the United States remains a pretty innovative uh, tech-savvy country, right? We're probably the leader in innovation and technology in key sectors, uh, world leader. Having said that, um, a key problem is really how to get this new technology into the government at scale. So how the technology can help improve the U.S. government's uh, capabilities really across the board, not just in the military defense realm, but everywhere, right? How many of us have used local governments or state governments or the federal government uh, still, you know, to, to, for, for basic baseline areas where you think they're might be better artificial intelligence in use or better computers in use or better systems in use. So the problem is there's tech innovation in the private sector. There's a huge amount of R&D in the private sector for technology, but it's still bringing it into the government at scale. And what do you think, you know, how can the government, to your point, do that, that, you know, more quickly and adapt new technology and, and bring in? The government's infrastructure for bringing in innovative technology is an infrastructure that was built in the 1950s, 60s, 70s. So it's an antiquated infrastructure, both in terms of our processes as well as literally, quite literally, the infrastructure itself. Um, we need to speed things up. That's not new. In fact, at this point, it's almost a trite right phrase. Everyone keeps saying it. The question is how. <laughs> I think we probably don't need more regulation. We need less. We don't need more new offices to focus on certain areas, but less and to make the offices we do have more effective. Um, we need continuity in people that are focused on these issues so that um, people aren't leaving every year <laughs> who are coming in and sort of supposedly focused on these issues, right? So um, we need to account for time as a key strategic factor. And then, you know, along those lines here at RNDF, you know, they have sessions on, you know, restoring, building a resilient, you know, defense industrial base. Um, what, you know, do you think the government is doing right along those lines? Because it seems like immediately from the DC bubble, that's more of a conversation topic and it seems people are much more focused on that now. Yeah. But, you know, is there enough, is there enough um, momentum and, and focus on that issue? There's been a shift in thinking and in recognizing the importance of the link between manufacturing and innovation. So this is a link that has existed and a lot in the business community, a lot of experts in the business community have recognized this. There's a wonderful professor at Harvard Law School named Willie Shi, who's written on this, you know, over well over a decade ago. 
now we have a greater recognition of this really important link between manufacturing and innovation. And that essentially means you need to manufacture goods here so that you can innovate along the margins, right? You can tinker, you can fix things. What's happened over the past 15 years with globalization and exporting a lot of our manufacturing is that countries like China have been able to develop a very innovative ecosystem. So you have a factory, you have the scientists and the people who work at the factory and the engineers, you have them fixing things in the factory and then in terms of the products they're producing, and then those products get better, right? That's sort of a cycle of innovation and how it happens. It's not happening here. No, and by losing that manufacturing component and by letting it go, um, we have, you know, lagged in certain areas like that. Now, the good thing is there's a much wider recognition of that. I'm not sure we're we're there yet. So when you ask what has the government done, I would say we've the government has recognized the problem. That's a first step toward fixing the problem. But now we actually need to take the really tougher steps of bringing more manufacturing back to the United States. Um, that requires, you know, funding. It requires incentives. It requires often deregulation. It requires a climate that allows you to build a new factory, right? So those sorts of things. But that will all take time. And then, so speaking of looking to the future, so one of the things that we're trying to get out of these conversations is that at the end of the year at Fault Lines, we ask um, our fellows at MSI, you know, what do they foresee being the biggest national security threat of the upcoming year? Um, so we'd like to ask of each you know, guest here, what do they think will be, whether it dominates the headlines or whether something flies under the radar, but is hugely impactful to U.S. national security, what you think yeah. will well, start? I'm increasingly worried by, you know, the aggressiveness of Iran and um, and actually, you know, North Korea. So these aren't new, new threats, but they are both, you know, actively developing the capability to use very powerful weapons against both their regional adversaries and, you know, mm-hmm. and in the case of Iran were the great Satan. So I am worried that, um, you know, while we're focused on Europe, as we should be, while we're focused on China, as we should be, um, that there are, uh, you know, that's really often the time sometimes when we, when the least expected, uh, you know, problem or, or a lesser expected problem emerges right at that moment, right? Like we, um, we're focused on the China-Taiwan uh, scenario, but um, what about, you know, North Korea making mm-hmm. things really difficult, uh, uh, for us right at that time. And we as a government sort of tend to veer from one problem to another. Well, and, to yeah, another and we need to kind of, you know, and, and of course there are great people in government today watching these issues and, and looking at them carefully. Um, but I, I do think we have to worry about those problems. And then beyond 2023, what do you see as a longer term challenge? I think a persistent challenge we're going to face is how to deter conflict, right? How to deter an outbreak of conflict. So while we've spoken about how the release of intelligence in terms of what Russia was going to do to Ukraine, in terms of the intelligence that indicated Russia was getting ready to invade Ukraine, that didn't actually stop the invasion of Ukraine. So it's important for people to remember. It's sort of a wonky, almost DC thing to say we released this intelligence and that was good. And it was good. And it did have a role in helping our allies uh, believe us that something bad was likely to happen, but it didn't actually prevent anything from happening. Right. Mm -hmm. So we need to figure out the right mix of capabilities um, that are best suited to deter, you know, the next potential conflict. And that's a really hard problem. We've learned some things from the current war. Mm -hmm. We've learned about the importance of stockpiling 
munitions. Uh, we learned about the importance of having troops uh, deployed abroad and a forward presence abroad, because once you leave a theater, it's much harder to get back into a theater. Um, and it's just harder, it's easier for an enemy or adversary to block you from getting back in. So we're learning things from the current conflict, um, the current tragedy, really, that's unfolding. And hopefully we'll be able to take what we learn and actually use it in a way uh, that prevents the next conflict. Thank you, as always, to Gabriel Otis and Brooke Agacon from NSI and Claude Jennings for their help producing today's episode. Join us tomorrow as we talk with former Undersecretary of Defense Ellen Lord. Thanks for tuning in to Fault Lines, our podcast that gets you smart fast on the national security debates shaking up America. <laughs>